We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Okay, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. I want to read a short portion uh, from Matthew chapter 21 before I turn to our uh, scheduled reading for, uh, from the book of Ezekiel. And uh, you'll see why just now. Matthew 21, verse number 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now let's turn back to Ezekiel 32 for our scheduled reading this morning in Ezekiel as we continue to plod through the prophets here. We're continuing the section of lamentations that Ezekiel's been instructed by God to give to the various nations around the nation of Israel. And here again we are with Pharaoh and Egypt in chapter 32 of Ezekiel, verse 1. And it came to pass in the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, I think this is 585 uh, B.C. Let me just double-check that. You have the eleventh year in 31, and the twelfth, and the twelfth month, almost at the end. So that would be right around that time. Uh, That the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and then verse 2, Son of man, take up a lamentation for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You are like a young lion among the nations, and you are like a monster in the seas, bursting forth in your rivers, troubling the waters with your feet and fouling their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will therefore spread my net over you with a company of many people, and they will draw you up in my net. Then I will leave you on the land. I will cast you out on the open fields and cause to settle on you all the birds of the heavens And with you I will fill the beasts of the whole earth. Doesn't sound good, does it? I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. 
I will also water the land with the flow of your blood. Even to the mountains and the riverbeds will be full of you. When I put out your light, I will cover the heavens and make its stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of the heavens I will make dark over you and bring darkness upon your land, says the Lord God. There's a little bit more going on there than just a, um, a matter of cosmology. Who was, who was an important, or what I should say was an important god in Egypt? The sun god and the moon and the pharaoh, by the way. He was, his light was going to be put out. Verse 9, I will also trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring your destruction among the nations into the countries which you have not known. Um, yes, which you have not known. Yes, I will make many peoples astonished at you, and their kings shall be horribly afraid of you when I brandish my sword before them, and they shall tremble every moment, every man for his own life in the day of your fall. For thus says the Lord God, the sword of the king of Babylon shall come upon you by the swords of the mighty warriors, all of them, the most terrible of the nations, I will cause your multitude to fall. They shall plunder the pomp of Egypt, and all its multitude shall be destroyed. Also I will destroy all its animals from beside its great waters. The foot of man shall muddy them no more, nor shall the hoofs of animals muddy them. Then I will make their waters clear and make their rivers run like oil, says the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate and the country is destitute of all that once filled it, when I strike all who dwell in it, then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is the lamentation with which they shall lament her. The daughters of the nations shall lament her. They shall lament for her, for Egypt, and for all her multitude, says the Lord God. It came to pass also in the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and cast them down to the depths of the earth her and the daughters of the famous nations with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down, be placed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those slain by the sword. She's delivered to the sword, drawing her and all her multitudes. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with those who help him. They have gone down. They lie with the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So this is picturing... Uh, Egypt and others that are sent down into the grave. Assyria is there and all her company with their graves all around her, all of them slain, fallen by the sword. Her graves are set in the recesses of the pit and her company is all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who caused terror in the land of the living. There is Elam and all her multitude all around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who have gone down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who caused their terror in the land of the living. Now they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They have set her bed in the midst of the slain with all her multitude, with her graves all around it. All of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though their terror was caused in the land of the living, yet they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. It was put in the midst of the slain. There are Meshach and Tubal and all their multitudes 
with all their graves around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Though they cause their terror in the land of the living, they do not lie with the mighty who are fallen of the uncircumcised, who have gone down to hell with their weapons of war. They have laid their swords under their heads, by their, but their iniquities will be on their bones because of the terror of the mighty in the land of the living. Yes, you shall be broken in the midst of the uncircumcised and lie with those slain by the sword. So the repetition notice of all these nations, these nations are ones who have gone down before. So just remember, and remember all of you who boast in your strength militarily, that God will put down the nations that don't follow him one by one. And you may prosper for a while, but not ultimately. Not ultimately. These nations went down one by one. And though they terrorized those who were in the land of the living, they are there in the grave now. There is Edom, verse 29, her kings and all her princes, who despite their might are laid beside those slain by the sword. They shall lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit. There are the princes of the north, all of them, and all the Sidonians who have gone down with the slain in shame at the terror which they caused by their might. They lie uncircumcised with those slain by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Pharaoh, now we're back to Egypt, will see them and be comforted over all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword, says the Lord God. Verse 32, for I have caused my terror in the land of the living, and he shall be placed in the midst of the uncircumcised with those slain by the sword. Pharaoh and all his multitude, says the Lord God. Now, maybe you wonder, what does verse 31 mean when it says that Pharaoh will be comforted over all his multitude? It's something like this, misery loves company. And so he will be comforted in the sense that he, his nation, Egypt, goes down there and he'll say, well, at least we're not the only ones in this pit. But that's the scantest of comfort, isn't it? That's hardly really a comfort, but that is what it is being said here. There is some uh, company in misery. Well, that's the reading of God's word this morning. We uh, invite uh, JL to share her offertory, and we're going to have the men come forward before she does that and take up your offering here in just a moment. Thank you, Ben. John, thank you. Dwayne. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians again. We're in chapter 3. Didn't that song so nicely encapsulate so much of the book of Philippians, uh, starting with uh, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, and yet at the same time we're called to press toward the mark of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and to continue doing that. Uh, one of the phrases in that song said to follow the Lord's example. And in this message this morning, in verses 17 through 21 of chapter 3, we are going to see such a text that kind of fleshes out what it looks like to follow the Lord's example. And the title of the message is Examples on the Way to Heaven. There's some examples to follow, some examples to avoid. Uh, We'll see both of those and then close with an encouraging note from the Apostle Paul in the last two verses of the chapter. Last time we learned about energetically pursuing Christ and how that was to be and is to be our main focus as believers in the Lord, 
Paul wanted to, and he made it his highest priority to know Christ and to be like him, and so we should also, as we often say, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me, good enough for you as well, and so we want to uh, keep that in mind. But how exactly do you do that? Well, here's a help in that regard, and that's verse 17. Brothers, he says, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. I translated it this way. Be fellow imitators of me, brothers, and observe those who walk that way just as you, as you have us as an example. I have to fix my translation there. Um, the idea of of fellow imitators is, is what I was focusing on, and, and the word join in the King, New King James is kind of what that's, kind of convey that idea, to be fellow imitators, to imitate along with the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to share some other verses that talk about this in a moment, but what I'm thinking about here is if you do not know what to do in your Christian life, in your life, because all of life is a Christian life if you're a Christian, isn't it? There's no division of my Christian life and my secular life. We are Christians all the time, aren't we? Not just some of the time. If you're unsure what to do, simply imitate the example of another godly Christian, a mature Christian person. If you've made a mess out of your life because you thought you knew the right thing to do, but then you realize, no, I didn't. I'm walking out in a way that's out of step with the with the Lord, then look at the good examples that you have in front of you. Stop where you're going and instead start on the new path of following such examples as the Apostle Paul exhorts us here in this text. This should get you on the right track. How are your examples conducting themselves in these strange times? What are they choosing to do with their life? How are they handling this or that kind of situation? What do they advise you to do? Sometimes you don't really see their example, but you hear it as they give you advice about what you should do. What they're doing is putting flesh on the bones of the teaching of Scripture, and this can help you see how it works out, because Scripture doesn't tell us all the details. It gives us all the principles we need, but it doesn't tell us all the details about how to apply those things, and sometimes we need someone who has walked farther along the path than we have to look to and say, okay, well, that's how they're applying that, and maybe I don't know exactly what to do, but if I follow them, I don't think I'll be going uh, astray. But you have to be humble to do that, don't you? You have to be humble because many of us think we know a lot or everything, and we don't need an example to follow. That's what we call pride, and that's a sin. Now, what is the example that Paul is talking about? He says, join in following my example. And then he says, note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So he gives really three kind of directions here, all the same really, pointing in the same direction. Uh, my example, those who so walk and, though, and as you have us for a pattern. The idea here is that imperfect people pursue Christ-likeness, by following other imperfect people who are just farther down the road 
than they are. We have not attained or been perfected, and that's the case for everybody. But uh, as Paul indicated earlier, uh, let's see, in verse 16, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, so let us walk. So he's suggesting that there are levels of maturity, and that's obvious to us, right? You know, new Christians haven't gone as far as a seasoned veteran in the faith who's been walking with Christ for 50 years. That's a totally different ball game, and so the new believer can, can gain much from the uh, prior generation, if you will, of believers. The us that Paul's talking about would include, who do you think it would include? You have us for an example. Who is he talking about? Well, us would include Paul, right? But why the plural? Who else? Timothy, as somebody has said, right? In fact, in the first verse of the letter, it says Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi, to the bishops and deacons. Uh, Who else could be included there? We mentioned at least one other person in our series in Philippians so far. Do you remember the name? Remember how to say the name? Epaphroditus, very good, Anne, very good, it's Epaphroditus. Yeah, you have a a good example in them. Timothy, Paul says, I have no one like-minded who will care for your state. Epaphroditus was deeply concerned for them because they had heard that he had been sick almost to death, and so it was a strange kind of thing. They're concerned for him, and he gets so concerned back for them, even though he's the one who's sick. So... They have those examples. What else might they have? Well, and and by the way, the Philippians knew all those men, right? They knew Epaphroditus, evidently. They knew Timothy. They knew Paul because those guys had come to plant the church there. Uh, There were probably other men or women, maybe a few or just one or two in the Philippian church, probably more by now because it had been 10 years or so since the church had begun, Uh, people there who were mature believers, good followers of Christ that would be good examples for them. I mean, who knows? Maybe the, maybe the corrections officer that we know as the Philippian jailer was a deacon in that church. Maybe he was a pastor in that church. Uh, what about Lydia, the seller of purple? I mean, you know, what about the girl who had been demon-possessed? Maybe she was in the church, too, and had become a, a mature follower of Christ and very enthusiastic because of what Christ had done for her. We don't know, but here's the point. We don't follow Paul or any of these other people away from the Lord. We follow them as they lead us toward the Lord Jesus Christ. What's his example that we're following? Well, it's, it's what that he left behind all of those unmeritorious works. Remember that? All of my previous stuff, he says, I counted as trash, worse than trash. It's nasty trash. He uh, made a concerted effort to forget those things, to put them in his past, put them behind him, because they were useless in the pursuit of Christ. You know, continually relying upon your ethnic background or your religious works does nothing to propel you in Christ's likeness or to move forward your Christian life. There are other things, especially Christ-centered things, that do that. You don't want to follow after useless things that are dragging you backwards. Instead, press aggressively forward to know Christ, to know the power of His resurrection, even to have a share in His sufferings, um, and to, to know Him uh, and, and uh, the, be, to be conformed into His death, as Paul said. Remember, being conformed to His death is 
knowing, understanding why he died, and then being conformed to the purpose of that in your life. And so all of this is part of the prize and upward call of God in Christ. Now, it must be that following an example is an important concept because 10 other times in the Bible it talks about it. Did you know that? 10 other times? Let's look at some of them. Um, Acts 20 and verse 35. And I'm going to exercise my fingers quickly here, turning the pages of Scripture. I don't have them typed out in my notes. Uh, See if you can keep up, or if not, uh, you can go back and listen again or uh, look these up. Acts 20, 35, Paul says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul says, I've shown you how to do this. And he's giving them an example. Then there's 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 16. Listen listen to these as they just pile up one after the other. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. He says, you know, you might have a lot of instructors and a lot of teachers in, in the Christian faith, but you don't have many fathers because I'm the one who, who brought the gospel to you initially. So he says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 11, he says this, imitate me, and here's the thing that I was alluding to just a moment ago, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. The call to follow examples, spiritual examples in your life, is never a call to follow those who are going off the beaten path. It's always a call to follow those who are following Christ. You ought to be able to discern that. You ought to be able to see that. And if initially you don't, then you should uh, as time goes by. But he says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. And then even later on in Philippians, just a few verses uh, down from where we're at, Philippians 4.9, He says, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these, what? Do. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. There are a whole lot of people in this world that have no peace. Why they have no peace? Because they're not doing what God wants them to do. You know, you can have a a situation of great upheaval in your life and still have peace if you're following Christ. Paul says, uh, if you are anxious, don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. And then he says, whatever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report, think on these things, if there's any virtue or any praise in them. And then he says, follow my example. And if you do those things, the God of peace will be with you. So I would suggest to turn that around, if the God of peace is not with you, if you're not at peace in your walk with the Lord, if there's strife and there's trouble and there's problems and, and all of that and you're, you're sinning, guess what? It's because you're not following the apostolic example. You're not praying uh, the way God wants you to. You're not thinking on things above. Your mind is all askew and off in different areas where it should be. But this is very clear. You follow that example and you will experience that peaceful situation. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is another one. What, what are we on here? One, two, three, four. We're on the fifth one, almost halfway through. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. You became followers of us and of the Lord, 
having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. So Paul is there. The Thessalonians begin to follow him as he follows Christ. And then they, in turn, become an example for others to follow in their footsteps. 2 Thessalonians has another example. This is an interesting one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul emphasizes there the example of his hard work. He was an apostle. He was worthy of financial support, and he got it sometimes, but other times not. And when he didn't, he worked so that he would not be a burden to those people that were not supporting him or that to whom he was ministering. That there is there's no positive example of a lazy Christian in the Bible. Okay, there's only negative statements about laziness in the Bible. We must work. People today despise it as an old-fashioned concept or think that they're entitled to some life of ease. Forgot that God put Adam and Eve in the garden to do what? to tend the garden, to work. And if you realize that, then you find a new joy in laboring, even even in your own garden, even around your own home. You get outside and you work and you find it to be an enjoyable thing because you're saying, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do with the little piece of dirt that he's given to me. You know, it's an encouraging thing. It's not like, oh, I got to go do this again. You know, you're doing what God has designed you to do. There's no room for laziness or bad attitudes in that. He calls us to work and not to live as freeloaders off of others. And that's just the Christian way. Call it the old, the old Christian or German work ethic or something like that, you know, like they said. But it's scriptural. It's scriptural. Um, follow that example. Uh, how about, uh, well, verse number 9, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And then we go on to 1 Timothy 4.12. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. A lot of areas for the young minister to concern himself with in being an example to others. Titus chapter 2 and verse number 7 says this, In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, and so on. So Titus is to show himself as a pattern, a type, a model for someone else to follow. Hebrews 13 and verse number 7. Hebrews 13 and verse number 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct, probably referring to those who have already gone to heaven. You're to follow their conduct. And then the final example that I pulled up for you is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 3. Peter is exhorting all elders who are placed in stewardship roles over the churches 
They're to, to shepherd the flock of God, verse 2, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Examples to the flock of God. So how do we apply this text? Stop for a second. Stop for a second and ask yourself, who are examples in my life that I can follow as I walk with God? Give me two or three of them. In your mind, you're thinking of them right now. If you're a woman, particularly a mature Christian woman, if you're a man, a mature Christian man, uh, somebody, you might not even know this person super well, but you see how they conduct themselves, or you might know them well. Don't tell me that you cannot think of any, because this scripture is indicating we ought to be able to think of some. If you can't think of any, then you need to look around a little bit more, maybe get out a little bit more, uh, do some more reading or something. And as I was writing these words, I just was stream of consciousness, wrote this right in my notes so you can see it. I'm thinking of one, two, three, four, five people, and I didn't think that long, that I could use as examples and follow the Lord like they are in certain areas of their lives. Exemplary people that I can imitate. Do you have any? Okay, now what do you do about that? Set aside some time this afternoon or this evening or this week to think about how you can apply those good examples to your life and put them into practice. This touches on a Part of Bible study, by the way, just step aside for a second from the text to remind you when you study the scriptures, you want to figure out what they mean, look at, that, look at it carefully, figure out what it means, then you want to apply what it means, but application is no good if you don't do anything about it. You might say, well, to apply this text today, I need to do X, Y, Z, but if you don't do X, Y, Z, then you might as well not have done anything. Don't pretend that you're super spiritual just because you packed your head full of knowledge. You want to, you know, get your feet moving in the direction that that knowledge told you to move. So actualize what you have learned. And be careful because there are many bad examples out there for us. I was just sent a a video snippet from somebody who is a very well-known preacher today, very well-known, not in our circles at all but who was trying to kind of wind his way around the question of how to handle the unevangelized. And isn't it so unfair that those people would be lost forever? And he was, uh, that was the questioner asking him. And he was trying to say at one and the same time, well, we know those that, that, that believe in, in Christ will be saved, but we don't really have enough information to know about others. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, I mean, John 8, 24, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's there's no other way to come to the Father except through me. Um, John 3, 36, if you uh, do not believe in him, the wrath of God abides upon you. God has told us the fate of those who do not believe the gospel. And so... 
And this was put in very flowery, very nice, very, what I think is deceptive language. And it was very sad, very sad. There are people all over the place who fall into this kind of category that Paul's going to talk about in verses, uh, let's see, I've got to get back to Philippians here. I'm in 2 Thessalonians. I'm really going to lose you and myself here. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, For many walk of whom I have, to- I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Many. There are some good examples, and there are many bad examples also. A few people live like Paul and his band of Christians. There are others, though, that are terrible examples. Uh, He reminded them in chapter 3, verse 1, remember he says, uh, sorry, verse 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Um, in Acts 20, he tells the Ephesian elders, wolves are going to come in dressed as sheep from outside and some from within to draw away a following after themselves. Very dangerous situation. This is such an urgent matter and such a sad situation that Paul is writing to them with tears in his eyes. He doesn't want them to be deceived because deception can lead to destruction. Who are these people that Paul's talking about? Well, he doesn't come out and name them, but he gives some characteristics. Number one, look at, he says, these are enemies of the cross of Christ. They may pretend to have some affinity for the things of God, but they're no friends of the cross nor of Christian people. They're employees, actually, of the devil. And imagine somebody saying this sort of thing. They're enemies of the cross of Christ today. How intolerant. How mean. How unloving. Now, if we honor God as we should... We would never think those kinds of thoughts because anything that opposes God is worthy of being called out as dangerous to God and dishonor or dangerous to God's people and dishonoring to God. So we don't we don't fly with those who are all concerned about their feelings and uh, making sure that nobody except Christians are offended at things. It says, number two, if you look at 18, these are the enemies, verse 19, sorry, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. I wanted to go to the, the uh, God part of it and leave the destruction until the end because that's the end outcome for them. Their God is their belly. Our God is God. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? It's a reference to their own sensual appetites, their own desires, their own flesh. It could be Judaizers again, but I, I suspect it's a reference to another group that do not try to live godly, but instead use Christian doctrine as a license, rather a license to sin. They're what we call libertines or antinomians, those who ignore God's moral imperatives. You know the kind who says, oh, you can just live however you want and God will forgive you. That's blasphemy. Don't accept that as any kind of charge against Protestant Christianity. 
uh, it is that which is used by those who are not walking with the Lord. The phrasing here that their God is their belly is highly metaphorical. The the belly is the, you know, it's a picture of the cravings of the flesh, the baser desires. They want to fulfill those cravings, whereas Paul and other Christians recognize that we need to restrain those cravings and keep our desires within their proper God-given boundaries. Uh, Thirdly, they glory in their shame. You know, my good works save me, aren't I wonderful? Or God loves me in my sin and I can do as much of it as I want to. This is the bottom line. They take pride in what they should be deeply ashamed about. Pride in what is deeply shameful. Their conduct is inherently evil and shameful. Now, they will recognize that. We recognize that now in others. Of course, it's always easier to do that in others, right? But they will recognize it themselves at the judgment. Can you imagine those who parade around their shame and act as if it's a wonderful thing the moment that they stand before the fiery, judging eyes of God that they will turn red with embarrassment, that they have lived in a way that is displeasing to God, they will recognize finally their inherently evil and shameful conduct. We know those who are such by their fruits, Matthew 7.20 says. Know that you will know them by their fruits. Number four, the fourth characteristic, it says in verse 19, they set their mind on earthly things. The Christian mindset is focused where? Set your affection on things, not on things on the earth. Colossians 3, the first verses of that chapter. Uh, What does it look like when you are uh, minding earthly things? Well, you love the world. 1 John 15 tells us, do not love the world nor the things of the world. Uh, It's it's, it's like professing Christians here who act like the world in terms of their desires and immorality behind the scenes, uh, those who focus on all kinds of worldly things. Their emphasis is on entertainment and sports and politics and pleasure and all of this that is not heavenly. The end of all of this is destruction. They will be separated from the Lord and from His people for all eternity. They will suffer what's called in the Bible the second death. That's mentioned in Revelation 2 and also several times in 20 and 21. Now let's close with an encouraging note from the last two verses of the chapter. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whom or from which, rather, we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body so that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. I rather prefer, instead of the word working by which he's able to subdue, it's really the word power, the word power that is there. Our standing with God demands a pure walk with the Lord. What Christians have in the future that we've just read is so much better than the belly-worshiping, shame-glorying, earth-minding, fake Christianity. We don't want those things. 
Yes, we live in the now, but we don't live for the now. We live in the world, but we don't live for the world. We have desires, but we curb them to honor God. We have done things that are, yes, shameful. We freely admit. But we recognize them as such instead of celebrating them. Our focus instead is this. We are citizens of heaven, and we ought to live like that. Good citizens, how they live. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're subjects of the great king. If you follow Christ, you have to get this, you know, everybody today is infatuated with the word identity. What's your identity? Who are you? If you're a Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. That's who you are. That's like, that's like one of the most important self-identifiers that you can attribute. You, you know, I'm a Christian, absolutely. I'm a citizen of heaven. That's what you are. Subject to Jesus Christ as my king. I'm a fellow citizen with the saints, and I'm under the lordship of Christ. I'm not like other people who are just citizens of earthly nations. Now, to the Philippians, this would be interesting because many of them would be citizens of what great city? They didn't live there. They were citizens of Rome. They were citizens of a far-off city. So they would kind of have this idea, yeah, I'm a Roman, but I'm living here. I need to live as a Roman should live even though I'm in Philippi or wherever I am. I'm a Christian, a citizen of heaven. I need to live here in a way that is becoming of how a heavenly citizen would live in this place. Far from our homeland, presently that homeland in heaven, we're awaiting with great anticipation the second coming of Christ. That's our great hope, Titus 2.13 tells us. that We're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's verse 21. He was going to, we're eagerly waiting for him, and he's going to transform us to be like himself. So something so much better is coming that we are willing to patiently endure the struggles, the trials of life during this age because we're waiting for what's coming. And what will that be? Jesus will use his omnipotent power to transform our present existence into something greater, into something that's suitable for heavenly, eternal living. Think of it, the power that he exercised when he created the universe. Without him, nothing was made that was made. The power that sustains the very atoms of your body together in their structures. He sustains all things by the word of his power. The power that caused the people of Israel to be able to leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea on dry ground. The power that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead, that kind of power is going to be operated upon you. And what is he going to do with it? He's going to transform our lowly body. I do think he's talking about our individual human bodies here, not the body of Christ, that it may be conformed to his glorious body. What does that look like? Well, that looks like what Jesus looked like on the Mount of Transfiguration, or it looks like uh, what Jesus looks like in Revelation 1, 
When John heard that voice, remember, and he turned and he saw one in the midst of the lampstands looking like the Son of Man, alive, the one who had the keys of death and of Hades, who is alive forevermore, the one in Revelation chapter 5 who comes to the throne to take the seven-sealed scroll, the one who rides on the white horse in Revelation 19, the one who rules the kingdom in Revelation 20, the one who sits with God in his throne in 21 and 22, the reason why there's no need for the light of the sun or the moon in heaven because the Lamb is its light. That's the one we're talking about. He's the one who's going to come and transform us to be like him. That just blows the mind. Paul talks about it in a farming analogy in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 to 44 there. He talks about, somebody asks, well, what's my body going to be like? Well, Paul doesn't give us a, you know, kind of a, you know, anatomical description of it, but he says, here's what it's like. It's like when you take a seed, say a corn seed, and you plant it in the ground. What comes out of the ground is quite a bit different, better, more glorious than what went into the ground. As wonderful as God's creation is now, all of this is kind of like, you know, me, you, we're all kind of like seeds. When we die, we're planted into the ground, and that which comes out will be redesigned, retrofitted, outfitted, enhanced for a sinless existence in the eternal kingdom of Christ. We're assured, even though we don't know the details, that God is, because He's good and infinitely powerful, that this will be beyond what we can fathom. It'll be a great thing. For our light affliction, Paul says, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So we follow Paul's example. We leave behind the junk. We press forward toward Christ's likeness. We beware of false believers who want to share their Christ-denying misery with us. We recognize that we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Don't wallow in the world's mess because you're not a worldling. You're one from heaven. And so live like it. Know your identity. Know who you are in Christ. Know that great thing that he's going to do for you and has already done for you, and he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you that we have good examples to follow not only of Jesus himself, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, but each other in the church. And Lord, I pray that as we think of this, we will remember the kind of two-edged sword nature of it, that we are to follow other examples, but as we do that, we ourselves become an example. And maybe there are some times that we're not such a good example for someone else to follow. Help us to strive to follow Christ so that other people could follow us and get directly to Him. In Jesus' name, amen.